Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. On February 10, 2013, a fire broke out in the engine room of the Carnival cruise ship Triumph. The fire knocked out the ship's power, leaving the vessel drifting in the Gulf of Mexico. The more than 4,200 passengers and crew were now left in limbo. The problem was that the lost power made it impossible to operate the flush toilets or to keep cool in the unshaded waters of the deep sea or to preserve and cook all the perishable food on board. Passengers reported long lines for food, shortages of fresh water, illnesses, and widespread boredom. Many passengers slept in the hallways or outside to escape the odors and the heat below deck. CNN dubbed the Triumph the cruise ship from hell. The ship finally ported safely in Mobile, Alabama on February 14th, four miserable days later. Now, the ship's loss of power wasn't just a tragedy for the passengers. Carnival expected to lose hundreds of millions of dollars due to this incident from lawsuits and the bad publicity. But apparently, Carnival learned their lesson. In June of that same year, Carnival set sail once again, but this time it was outfitted with new emergency power capabilities. Carnival knows that when the power goes out, the party is over. In the same way, when followers of Christ aren't connected to our power source, which is the vine, things will quickly deteriorate in our lives. But before we look at that, we need to look at a verse that has confused and troubled a lot of people. Verse 6, please. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. The interpretation of John 15:6 can be the cause of heated debate among many good believers. Some have suggested that those who do not abide in me are believers who have been unfaithful, and so they have lost their salvation. And thus the vine dresser described that they should be cut off and thrown down into hell. But Jesus has said in other places that no one can be saved and then unsaved. Others suggest that the non-abiding branches represent those who never truly believed as in people who reject Jesus outright or those who just merely profess to believe. Now, I don't think that it is talking about either of those two things, and I will try to explain. Well, let me first deal with the position that the non-abiding branches are people who have never believed. This is the easiest one to refute, I think. Jesus has clearly indicated that the branches are his true disciples not non-believers, and he promised that that abiding would inevitably lead to bearing fruit. So that means that if they stay connected to him, they will receive that nourishing sap and grow strong. And so eventually, they will bear unmistakable evidence of fruit as their identity as members of the vine. Moreover, the presence of the fruit will testify to their good health in Christ. So I think it's pretty clear that the illustration applies only to believers. 
Now we know this because John 15, 2 speaks of every branch in me, which presumes that our relationship already exists. And because John 15, 3 specifies Jesus' audience as those who are already clean. So, is Jesus talking about saints or is he talking about sinners? I think it's neither, at least in the way that most people think of it. I don't think Jesus is speaking of salvation in hell, but of the works that a believer does. Now follow me on this. Imagine a grapevine. If it does not produce grapes, it is essentially worthless. The reason for that is that the wood of the vine is too soft for any other purpose. Now a tree might be cut down, sawed into planks, and then used to construct furniture or to build a house. But the vine is always gnarled and twisted and cannot yield planks. Besides, it is brittle. Anything that was built of it would soon break in the user's hands and thus be worthless. More so, it's not even good for burning. William Barclay points out in his commentary that at certain times of the year it was stipulated by law that the people were to bring wood offerings to the temple to supply the fires for the sacrifice. But it was also laid down that the wood of the vine must not be brought because it was useless for even that purpose. Why? Because it burned way too quickly. The only thing that could be done with it, save letting it lie around, was to just make a bonfire and destroy it immediately. Now Jesus here most likely is drawing upon the imagery of Ezekiel's illustration where we read these words. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can man take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel, and the fire has consumed both of its ends and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred? The point is simply this. The vine dresser would toss the disconnected branches aside because they are good for nothing. And as Warren Wiersbe so succinctly states concerning this verse, it is unwise to build a theological doctrine on a parable or an allegory. Jesus was teaching one main truth, which is the fruitful life of the believer, and we must not press the details of that too much. So what is Mr. Wearsby saying? Just as an unfruitful branch is useless, so an, un an unfruitful believer is useless for the kingdom work, and so must be dealt with. It's a tragic thing for a once fruitful believer in Christ to backslide and lose his privilege of fellowship and service. Now, according to this view, it is only the believer's works that are burned. And so if these works are not of Christ, then it is the Christian's role as a fruit bearer and not his salvation that is discussed in this entire passage. Now, several observations support this. First, it is fruitfulness rather than salvation that is in view throughout this entire section of this chapter. Now true, the matter of burning is often associated with hell and with the loss of salvation. 
but that does not mean that it is always associated with it or that it is associated with it in this case. On the contrary, burning is not always used of hell. As the, first, as the passage I talked about last week in 1 Corinthians proves. Let me remind us of that. This is 1 Corinthians 3.12. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, then each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, if any, man, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now get this next part. But he himself will be saved, yet as though through the fire. So here we see that the fire is in association with the destruction of useless works, rather than the loss of salvation, that is most appropriate, I think, for this passage. Now, Lot would be an example here. Think of it. He was completely out of fellowship with the Lord. He had ceased to bear fruit for God's glory, and so all of his dead works were burned up in Sodom, and yet he himself was saved. Now, if someone holds to this interpretation that that verse concerns salvation, then they must reject certain other verses, such as Philippians 1.6. For how could Paul be confident that he who had begun a good work in Philippians would continue it until the day of Christ, if at any time they might be cut off for failing to be fruitful? We must also reject Romans chapter 8, for in that case there would be something able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We would even have to reject verses from John's Gospel itself for some of the clearest statement of the true believer's security are found in this very book. One example is John 10:27. Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither can anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now we must reject all of those verses if John 15:6 is refuting the believer's security in Christ. So, does this mean that if we don't abide in Jesus, we will be lopped off and cast into the fire? I don't think so. Now, if we don't abide in him, then indeed the fruit-bearing part of our life, which will be the rewards we enjoy in heaven, will be burnt up. But never our position in Christ, because our salvation was secured by what Jesus did on the cross, and apart from any work that we have ever done, are doing, or ever could do. As I said earlier, since the wood of the vine is so soft, it is useless to build with. And so Jesus is saying here, if your life is not bearing fruit for the kingdom, then essentially it's really good for nothing except for kindling. Now that's an interesting analogy really, because that's really what life is all about. We as Christians are either bearing fruit, or we're just burning up the clock and passing the time. 
But a true branch, truly united with the vine, will always bear fruit. And if there is no fruit, the branch is worthless and it must be cast away and burned. It is a tragic thing for a once faithful believer to backslide and lose his privilege of fellowship and service even though he will not lose his relationship. I think if anything, John 15:6 describes divine discipline rather than eternal destiny. But with all of that said, shall we this morning rejoice because we are able to accept that interpretation and therefore consider ourselves to be safe once again? Shall we just relax because we will not be condemned to hell for our fruitlessness? That would be horrible. Our reaction should be one of horror, rather to think that it is possible to be saved by Christ, to be cultivated and cared and coddled by the divine vine dresser, and to be preserved for heaven, and yet with all those facts, choose not to be fruitful with a proper heart response to the one who has done all those things for us. Saved and yet fruitless? Far be it from any Christian to be content with that. And it is to our shame if we are. Verse 7, please. Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done to you. Now Jesus quickly turns from the negative to the positive. As the believer abides or remains vitally connected to Jesus Christ, he or she will begin to assume a Christ-like character. That means that the believer is transformed from the inside out. His or her mind dwells on the kind of thoughts that God thinks. And so the believer's heart begins to reflect the values of God. And as we think as God thinks, we will ask of things consistent with his plan which results in his giving us what we ask. Jesus says, if you are clinging to me, if your life is intertwined with mine, you can ask whatever you want and your prayers will be answered. But notice the qualification that is almost always completely passed over in this passage. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's the qualification. And this is the problem with most of our prayers. James 4.2 says, You have not because you ask not, but when you ask, you receive not because you ask amiss. In other words, our requests are out of line with who God is and what his word teaches. Listen, when we are not faithfully in the word, we do not know how to pray. Because prayer and the word must go hand in hand. As I am in the word, his words will abide in me. And it is then and only then that I know how to pray and for what to ask. Example. We are talking about doing some major upgrades to our kitchen here at church. This is Calvary Chapel after all. But if I went to the Father tonight and said, Oh, Father... We need money for the kitchen upgrade, and so I pray you would just help me to find a big stash of cocaine to sell. I'll even tie 10% right off the top. Now, 
Would the Lord answer that prayer? Or say you're at the mall and some punk swerves in front of you and takes the last parking space. Can you pray? Oh, Lord, I pray that kid would just be ate up with tumors in the lovely name of Jesus. No, because that is completely out of line with what the Word says and what we should be doing. Now, we chuckle at that, but I have a hunch that if we could play back all of our prayers over our lives, we would be both shocked and amused by them. Oh, how foolish that was, we might say. How out of line with what I now know is God's heart. No wonder that prayer wasn't answered. One preacher I heard said that all through high school, he prayed that this one girl would fall in love with him, but she was never interested. But at the 20-year class reunion, when he saw her, all he could say was, Thank you, Jesus. But God will not answer selfish or self-centered prayers. Now, a classic example of this is the bargain that young Salieri makes with God in Peter Schaeffer's play, Amadeus. Salieri, speaking here, says, I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return for that, O Lord, I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility, and every hour of my life. And I will help my fellow man all that I can. Amen and amen. And he begins his life like that with that bow to God. He keeps his hands off of women, he works diligently at his music, he teaches musicians for free, and tirelessly helps the poor. His career goes well, and so he believes that God is keeping his end of the bargain. But then, Mozart appears, with musical gifts far above anything Salieri could ever imagine. His genius had obviously been bestowed upon him by God alone. Amadeus, which is Mozart's middle name, means beloved by God. And yet he is a vulgar, vile, and self-indulgent man. The talent that God so lavishly wasted on Mozart in Salieri's mind precipitates a crisis of faith in the heart of Salieri. Salieri bemoans, it was incomprehensible. Here I was denying all of my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift, and there was Mozart indulging his in all directions, even though engaged to be married and with no rebuke at all. Finally, Salieri prays to God, From now on, you and I are enemies. And he therefore works to destroy Mozart. Now, that story brings up a very important point. Jesus promises to answer our prayers if we truly abide in him, but we must also accept that sometimes that answer will be no. Jesus himself, who is our model in this, understood this. For did he not pray, Father, if it is possible, let this cup 
pass from me? But the answer to that prayer was no. But here's the key. He then said, but not my will, but your will be done. Likewise, we have to be willing to take no for an answer and trust God that it is to his benefit and our benefit for him to say no. But with all of that said, I don't believe Jesus is giving us just some general teaching on prayer here. I believe since he's talking about I am the vine and you are the branches and in me you will bear much fruit. And then he says, ask whatever you want. I think he is primarily talking about in context bearing fruit. I think he's trying to say, do you find you're a despairing person and want joy? Do you find you're a hard-hearted person and want tenderness? Do you find you're an unforgiving person and you want to be forgiving? Do you find that you're an anxious person and you want to have peace? He says, ask for it. I am the vine and you are the branches. My roots are in the very lifeblood of God. And if you are united with me, you can have any of those character qualities. Just ask for them. Look at verse 8 with me. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Why should we desire to bear much fruit? We know that Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, and the Father is the gardener. Everything the Father and the Son do is geared to enhance our abiding and our fruitfulness. With each trimming, with each pruning, there will be more of Christ in us for God's glory and the blessing of others. One result of that is that it will prove that we are truly his disciples. There's also the thought there that discipleship is not static, but it is a growing and a developing way of life. Always the true disciple is becoming more fully a disciple. God is glorified in the work of the Son, and now we have the other truth that God is also glorified in the work of the believers who abide in the Son. There is an air of completeness and certainty about that. The disciples will surely glorify the Father by their continual fruit-bearing, and since they cannot bear fruit by themselves, the fruitfulness is the evidence of the Father at work in them, and thus that is the thing that glorifies him. And he said, any branch that bears no fruit will be cut off. Now that does not mean that your good deeds makes you a Christian, but your good deeds, he says in verse 8, shows and proves that you are his disciple. What does that look like? Being born again means that your heart has been uprooted and replanted into a new stem and into new soil. The very life of heaven comes into your life. And union with Christ is the only basis for that kind of growth. And by the way, before moving on, that is a cataclysmic statement. That is a radical statement. 
Friends, Christianity just can't be a little right. It is absolute insanity, it is absolutely crazy, or it is completely right. But it cannot be just a little bit right. So instead of reading the Bible kind of casually and seeing it as a bunch of Aesop's fables with nice little morals for living, if you look at it and actually see what it says and what its claims are, it has to change the whole way in which you think about everything or else you have to reject it utterly. Let's be up front here. If there is no fruit on the branch, you cannot be sure this morning that you're a Christian. Do you see that? Now that does not mean that if there is presently what you perceive as no fruit on the branch, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian because you know there are winter times. There are times in which our branches seem to be barren. There are times in the year in which even though the branch is real and alive and hooked to the vine, yet during hard times, during dry times, during times of suffering and temptation, we may not see any kind of growth. But that's the key. Just because we don't see it does not mean that the growth is not there. Think of your kids as they grew up. You didn't notice this, but every single day they were growing. But it was so incremental, it went unnoticed until you had to keep buying them bigger pairs of shoes. And the fact is that winter can be a season. But when summer comes, the real branches will eventually begin to bear fruit that is noticeable. So what Jesus is trying to say here is, if long ago you got baptized or you made some kind of decision or you joined a church or whatever, but you have never seen this kind of growth of holiness and this passion for God and desire for prayer and His Word and fellowship, and this movement for becoming, becoming more like Christ, unless you see some type of that kind of growth in your life, you cannot assume that you belong to Him. This is the whole 2 Corinthians 5.17 thing. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he becomes a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There has to be something different in your life once you become a Christian. So, if there's anybody here who's never seen that kind of growth or who has never seen those kind of changes, in fact, you may be sitting back and listening to this whole sermon and you say, I don't have that kind of organic relationship with God. I've always thought of Christianity as just being a matter of being a good person. I've never really understood what it means to enter into that complete and intimate relationship with Him. I've never known what it is like for Him to be my Savior. What I would say to you is, go to Him today. Let me say something to those of you who aren't sure you're Christians. Or maybe you're thinking about Christianity and you're saying, well, I'm wondering about Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, it's very typical for people when they're thinking like that to ask a question like, if I become a Christian, what do I have to give up? That's very typical. People come and say, well, I'm thinking about Christianity, but what are the rules? First of all, you're making it way too hard. Because what you're really thinking is what it means to be a Christian is basically to clean your life up first. 
Now think of the illustration that we've been studying the last three weeks. Think of the image. Does the branch get the life of the vine because it's fruitful? Does the branch say, hey, I'm being fruitful, vine. Would you please connect with me now? Does the branch get the life because it's fruitful? Of course not. The branch is fruitful because it gets the branch and the vine. Now, C.S. Lewis put it pretty well in Mere Christianity when he said, The Christian way is different as it's both harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your ordinary self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires you think innocent, as well as those you think wicked, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. You see, Christianity is both harder and easier than what you may be trying to do. So when somebody says, will I have to give up sex before marriage? Will I have to give up my money? Do I have to be nice to crazy Aunt Mildred? I hope nobody has an aunt named Mildred. If you're thinking that, you're lowering lowering the bar. To become a Christian is to say, since I'm going to be saved completely and only by grace, not because I can clean up my life, but because of His grace, all that is left for me to do is just surrender. Therefore, to become a Christian means to come into and be connected with the vine. Jesus is saying, I want to become your reason for doing everything. Me. I want to be your entire life. That's what it means. The branch has no life apart from the vine. I want you, in other words, to give me your whole life. To give up the right to yourself. To give up the right to call the shots in your life. To give up the right for you to decide what's right and what's wrong. Secondly, and just as important, Jesus says, let my love remain in you and let my love dwell in you. Abide in my love. Maybe in some ways this is the most important thing I can tell you today. What does it mean to be a Christian? A Christian is somebody who has put his or her faith in Christ and received him as their Savior. A Christian is someone who says, oh, I see Up till now, I've been trying to be a good person. I've been trying to be my own savior. I've been trying to make myself acceptable. But today, I just come to the Father and say, Father, accept me, receive me, and wipe out my sins. Not because of my works, but because of what Jesus has done. Because of what he did on the cross. Because of his perfect life and death. And the minute you do that, the minute you do that, All of your sins are wiped out and pardoned. And Jesus' perfect, holy, unblemished record is then transferred to your account and you're adopted into the family of God. And you're completely accepted on that day and at that moment. At that very moment, God not only pardons you, but He loves you, and even more amazingly, He sees you as He sees His Son. He sees you as perfect and as ravishingly radiant and beautiful and great a person as Jesus is. 
So hear this. A branch does not enhance the life of the vine. A branch only lives off the life of the vine. In the same way, a Christian does not grow in how loved you are by God. Never. He loves you with a perfect love on both your good days and on Monday morning when people give you a wide berth before you have that first cup of coffee. So as we close, I urge you just to keep abiding and to hang in there. G. Campbell Morgan once went to Italy and he saw a 600-year-old tombstone. There had been a tremendously huge slab of marble that had been placed over that grave. But some years ago, an acorn had obviously had fallen onto the grave and grown up. And out of it had come this tremendous oak which had cracked the marble slab in half and caused it to roll off on both sides. That little acorn had cracked that marble slab. G. Campbell Morgan says he suddenly realized if God would put that kind of power of gradual biological growth in an acorn, just think of how much potential you have in you. But it's often gradual potential. God's life, if you are a Christian, has been planted in you. And whatever your problems are, if you are willing to keep watering that acorn, who knows what slabs God can crack and roll off of you this morning. So don't be discouraged. It might just be winter time. Let us pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are the vine. We are the branches. We have no life apart from you. But you have chosen to graft us in. That we would not only have a productive and meaningful life down here on earth, but that we will have an eternity that none of us could possibly comprehend how great that is going to be. So I pray, Father, that wherever everyone is within the sound of my voice and as this goes over the Internet, that if they do not know you, that today would be that day, that they would come to you in repentance and faith. And for those of us, Lord, who are Christians, who may be going through hard times, times where we may not be seeing the fruit that we wish we would be seeing, help us just to be patient and keep us, Lord, doing the work that you have called us to do. For you have promised that if we abide in you, we will bear much fruit. We ask in Christ's name, amen.